This is Laura McHugh, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. My name is Eric Beatner, and I am joined this week by my special guest co-host, the wonderful Chris Calvin. Welcome, Chris. Well, thank you, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you have a new book out, All That Fall. In the book, Emma Lawson is caught up in a kidnapping. Uh, Her son goes missing. It is a harrowing 48 hours that you have depicted in this book. Uh, And during that time, uh, a whole lot more comes to light. There's more than just uh, happens in, in the setup. From the start, when you were writing this, did you want to put such a tight clock on it? I mean, only two days really it makes everything that happens that much more desperate in the book. Right. So I don't outline at all. So I had no idea what the timeline would be. I didn't know what the subplots would be. I usually think of a character or have an idea for someone and maybe a setting and I put them somewhere. And I know one thing, which is I want something exciting to happen because I want it to be an adventure. Other than that, I had no idea. And so it just, evolved to be a very condensed time frame that was never my intention well that see that seems crazy <laughs> to me because i'm i'm a very strict outliner and, and i like to know wh- where it's going so i mean as you were typing along and, and getting emma in, into trouble after trouble for it to just come out as you know almost like a real-time kind exactly. of exactly that's exactly what know. it's like i i think um first of all it also Uh, started sort of as an ensemble piece, even though Emma emerges as the central character. And I had a two-book contract for a series, and so I figured that was Emma's series. But in the beginning, when I was writing, I wasn't really clear who was going to do what. And so that showed a lot of people on a single day in different situations. I think an ensemble lends itself to that sometimes more than first person or a single character. you got to move them along. But if you have, you know, three to five characters who are important, you can do a lot of things in 24 hours. You can fill a lot of chapters with energy and sort of excitement. The one thing that was funny to me was I did have um, this wonderful author who is a fabulous best-selling author. We'll go unnamed because of the comment they had, but they read it for me early on and they said, you know, there's no sex scenes in here. It's a thriller and there's, there's never, you know, we don't get to sort of meet the person in that way. And I was like, well, you know, it's 48 hours. They had sex before, they had sex after, but you know, it's 48 hours. So I think it probably had some missing elements for some people who would normally think of how you get to know characters in this kind of genre. I mean, I'm looking forward to the next book. Not necessarily, I don't, I don't write sex scenes. I don't know if I'll learn how to, but um, you know, maybe going outside of what we learned about Emma in that brief period. Yeah. Well, that's the fun of doing a series is that you do get to explore those those different things. Uh, you know, and Emma, she's a government ethics investigator. Uh, and I mean, these days, it's easy to think that government and ethics are two very divergent paths <laughs> about as far as you can get. But I mean, it, is this a real job? I was not even aware that this is a job. So I've worked in policy politics adjacent for a long time. And one of the things I see and you see everyone does are these sort of ethical challenges and the way that government tends to deal with it. In California, we have a Fair Political Practices Commission. And they're considered, if you were to ask someone, what's the Ethics Commission in California? So that was started to deal with things like bribes, very concrete, politically related corruption. 
After Watergate, it became clear that ethics was bigger than that. And in (laughs) California, they established a commission called the Little Hoover Commission. Every year it takes two topics and looks at uh, whether government is functioning appropriately. So mm-hmm. I sort of merged those two things into something that does not exist, uh, but it is California. We're quirky here. And so <laughs> we do have this little Hoover Commission and Fair Political Practices, and they both accomplish what Emma would accomplish. All right. Well, this book has a missing child uh, and also a mother's relationship to her son is really at the heart of it. And as you mentioned, you do a lot of work as a children's advocate. Was it kind of inevitable that those issues were going to make its way into your fiction? So probably bigger than the child advocacy I do, which I do feel is important. I've, I worked as a CEO for the Academy of Pediatrics for a long time, and I work on children's health and well-being and what's happening with COVID and all those things. Um, but my, my own uh, background is that I uh, didn't feel safe in my home as a child. It wasn't safe. And that's I'm not unique in that. Um, unfortunately, there are lots of children who have that. And I'm not going to go into detail about it was, but it was scary for me every day. And so when I was a kid, reading books for kids where kids are beset by monsters and dragons and evil villains, and yet they're okay, um, was my sanity, my salvation reading, you know, that that's that's how I thought there's a possibility beyond what I'm I'm existing in. Mm-hmm. Never thought of being a writer, never wanted to access my imagination, scary stuff repressed in there. No, I'm not interested. And so with this book, it didn't start out with a three-year-old. It didn't start out with a kidnapping. I wasn't looking. I never want to talk about scary things. But it evolved into a book like the one I read as kids, but for adults. So meaning I don't mind that this is a spoiler. No child is harmed. Uh, The child who's kidnapped (laughs) is not even, there's always someone with her to, to make her think she might be scared and we worry for her. But I, I learned from this book that the child advocacy, my own background as, as a survivor of some things means that mine are going to be thrillers where kids are okay. I kill yeah. adults all the time. doesn't bother me, <laughs> but, but, but children are safe in my books and that's why. Yeah. Well, now you also do some consulting on the side and uh, like a conflict resolution type stuff. Was that, was that fair to say? Because I, I think in many ways, it's almost similar to wrestling a plot into shape, isn't it? I mean, you have to negotiate with your characters. You have to resolve conflicts in your story. Is, it, is there anything you can bring from one discipline? I'm going to say it's, it's I, that's brilliant and it's identical. Because I had done all that conflict resolution and getting groups together, it's very similar to plotting. I think it's why I can do it organically without an outline. Yeah. Um, you have to get different points of view. I do have a big chart at the end, which makes my room look like a serial killer's den, you know, on the wall <laughs> with all the, the marks and the, how many times different people are in chapters. And, you know, so I, the plotting for me happens at the end. Excellent. Uh, and then just on a, a personal level, just because I've, I've known you for a long time, I just have to know, is your son going to jump into the California governor's race? Because I think we're ready for him. We, we need him. You know him. what? It's very, very <laughs> kind. So I do have three children, and you're referring to my middle son, um, Matt, who is currently the youngest member of the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. I think he does fabulous things. Um, I don't think, I think he's He's fine with Gavin. I don't think he's going to jump into this one. Um, I've got a daughter who was a death penalty appeals uh, lawyer and is now running a policy group on sort of criminal justice reform. I have a younger son who's studying artificial intelligence, not how to make computers 
uh, think faster, but how to keep them from killing us when they think faster. So he's going <laughs> to co-write a book with me, I'm sure. So. <laughs> Excellent. Well, your co-host duties today are easy because I already talked to three amazing authors. So first up in the hot seat was Alma Katsu, who's been writing creepy and atmospheric historical horror novels. Uh, but she now she's finally put her own 30-year career in the CIA to work in her first spy novel, Red Widow. Now, Chris, spy novels are one of those genres I would never feel comfortable tackling because I know there's so much I, that I don't know about it. And for someone like Alma to bring her personal experience to the page and, and it's getting all of this praise for being so authentic. Do you get excited about doing research about things you don't know, or do you tend to stay away from those kind of things just out of the fear of getting it wrong? <laughs> I haven't written enough to know where I'll eventually uh, go, but I would say I agree with you that Alma has this incredible experience that we're never going to have. And with her writing talent, it means we're going to see it in a way that I would never, ever try to do. I would like to learn to drive cars like Rem Runner, like the folks you have uh. in that book. I'll, I'll do that <laughs> research. <laughs> So it depends on what the research is. I would do that. Spy and CIA, I'm going to defer to her and, and read her book. Alma, when last we spoke, you were here with The Deep. And I believe at the time, if I remember correctly, I think I asked you why you hadn't used your intelligence background to write a novel. So clearly, I inspired you to write Red Widow. Clearly. Clearly, okay. So we can we can put that to rest. The, the yeah. rumors, <laughs> but uh, I mean, congratulations on, on this book. This is it seems like this is probably a long time coming for you. Is it was did you have to cave to the pressure of everybody asking you that question of like, oh my gosh, you worked at the CIA? Why aren't you writing about it? Gosh, I wish there had been pressure. No, I mean, I know it seems really weird that I'm sort of doing this backwards, that I started <laughs> in another genre and now I'm doing it. But it, it made me realize that part of the reason, I think, is because I retired in, in the interim. I had actually tried writing spy novels early on before, while well, I was still writing The Taker, my first book, which mm. was, what, 20 years ago at this point. But when you're working in it and you have an active clearance, it's trickier. Like they really don't like it <laughs> when you write about spy business, even fictionally. So in retrospect, I think I must have just in the back of my mind been thinking, save it for when I retire. Yeah. So I guess we're never going to really know how much of this is from your real life and how much of it is just made up, right? That's all uh, top secret. Oh, it's all me. It's all okay. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what they make you say. <laughs> And the other thing too is in you know in the in the time since when I first started to try to write a spy novel, I've become a much better writer. So <laughs> it, it enables me to handle certain things that were just hard before. So at the basis of Red Widow is an actual true story. Oh wow! Yeah, but it's changed so much that you'll never recognize the story that it's based on. So it's really changed. But you know, when I was talking to my editor about writing a spy book someday. And she, she encouraged me to try it. I knew right away which case would be like at the heart of it because it really is fascinating. And it points out a couple things that I find so interesting about working in intelligence. You know, the job itself, you're constantly sort of, you know, confronted with ethical and moral challenges. Yeah. And that imbalance of power between the agencies and the employees, you know, the agencies are very, very powerful and you're really trusting them. Yeah. to do the best by you as an employee. And sometimes that trust is betrayed. And so I wanted to bring that out in a book too. One really gratifying thing is since the book came out a couple of weeks ago, 
I've been getting a lot of emails from people who were in the business or are in the business. And they're telling me like, this is the most realistic depiction of what it's like to work at CIA. And so that's real and that's in there, but it's not classified. Yay. So I can can do it. (laughs) Well, I mean, I know that I've had those kind of things where like once you get a little distance from it, it it actually is easier to, to, to process and easier to, to have that perspective on it. It sounds like that's a little bit of what happened here is once you retired, once you could leave the day to day behind, it kind of gave you probably a different perspective on the whole experience, right? Well, it makes you more willing to go there, right? Mm. Um, But that, I mean, I absolutely agree with with what you just said. And it's something I found over my career. Like as I switched jobs six months later, it was like, oh, now I see the answer to that problem that I've been working on. Gosh, if I could only go back. Well, in spy fiction in general, it seemed like there was a time there where Russians had sort of fallen out of favor. Maybe they, they were they were overdone in the early days in the 60s, sort of the height of the Cold War. But now the, that evil empire is back. That's just in fiction. Within the agency, has the specter of uh, the sort of the Russia threat, did that never go away? And it was just sort of bubbling more behind the scenes that, that the public didn't see? Well, I think it did track. Now, first of all, I'll, I'll say I'm not a Russian specialist. Okay. I was uh, I started out in multilateral affairs, and then I uh, last ten years or so of my career, I was actually in technology, working emerging technologies. But in, in multilateral affairs, you work on a lot of problems and has a big Russian component. And the other thing is, you know, for many many decades. Russia was the number one target. And so it, it was just, you know, the 800 pound gorilla. You couldn't get away from it. You learned something about it, even if you yeah. weren't an expert on it. I do think there was a time, you know, as the um, Soviet Union was imploding, you know, and the Berlin Wall was coming down and all that, you know, because I was part of it. Like I said, I work multilateral affairs, and that's an area that's a, a little bit what you would consider like a non traditional target in the intelligence community. And we had no resources, right? <laughs> like if I had a team of 10 people to work at Target, I was lucky. And meanwhile, there was hundreds and hundreds of Russian analysts, linguists, et cetera, et cetera, uh-huh. sitting around twiddling their thumbs. And so people like me would rail against, why do we have this imbalance? We don't need so many, right? So for a while, there actually was, uh, I think, a decrease in the amount of resources that were put against the Russian Target, and then we got caught flat-footed. I think we uh-huh. let our guard down in a couple areas. I, I don't think we saw the disinformation and the propaganda campaigns that, you know, have been sort of an earmark of Russian um, policy. <laughs> yeah, it's always a pendulum. Yeah. Yeah. So, with your time uh, working there, I mean, you had all this history. You have all the details to get, like you say, the culture right. I mean, in the end, was the hardest part of writing Red Widow, was it coming up with Lindsay and finding this character as your way inside your story? Was it, was that the most difficult part in the end? Well, Eric, I don't know about you, but the protagonist for me is always like the most difficult because yeah. even if they have a little bit of the anti-hero in them, they're the good guy. And to me, that's always like not as much fun to write as the bad guy. <laughs> Yeah, she was hard in a way to sort of crack the code. On the other hand, she's very typical of a lot of the younger women that I know working in intelligence, you know, that they're just good hearted people. They're really trying their hardest to do the best, their best. Maybe they haven't quite figured out where all the tripwires lay. And so in some ways she was very um, 
familiar to me. In other ways, you know, I'm not a spring chicken. So, you know, I kind of hesitate to write from a young woman's perspective, but here we go. (laughs) You alluded to it a little bit, but I think one of the things that's interesting about this book compared to a lot of spy fiction is it really does get into how deeply it affects your family and your relationships and, you know, like the husband and wife relationship in, in this book and how it, it permeates your whole life because it's a world of secrets and lies. And, and do you feel like it kind of affects your level of trust for years? Like even after you left the agency, are you more yeah. distrustful of people or, or are you just, are just more vigilant than the rest of us? So we actually you maybe trust people more because you've done the research. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, but um, I think my whole way of thinking kind of changed a bit when I, well, two things. I read this article that was talking about how uh, case officers, which is what most people think of when they think of CIA, those are the people that go out and recruit foreigners who have access to the secrets that, you know, that we need. That case officers had a higher prevalence of divorce and alcoholism and and all these things. And it made sense to me because case officers, while they do a really difficult job, I think it can take a real toll on their psyche because the job is basically teaching people to be the best manipulators in the world. Like you're trying to convince somebody to do something that's not in their best interest, right? Yeah. They may be mad at their country. They may have reasons for wanting to spill secrets, but at the end of the day, it's at best something that'll get them in jail and at worst something that'll get them killed, right? So it's your job to convince somebody to do that, right? And to hold their hand and calm them down when they freak out and So imagine working in a building where you're with the best manipulators in the world. Like I know a lot of (laughs) lawyers are probably out there listening, going, oh, I know all about that. Yeah. Just imagine every single one of them is the best lawyer you ever went up against. And some people lose control of it. And so, you know, it was the realization of that, that you're in this environment where occasionally you're going to get dropped into a shark tank. And The other thing, which is, you know, when you get a security clearance, especially the really high level security clearances, the government demands a lot of you and rightly so, right? Because they're entrusting you with some pretty important secrets, but it's very invasive. They have, you know, long roots into every aspect of your job. You do financial security disclosure statements every year. You know, they want to know who you know, especially foreigners. They monitor, you know, your phone and your computer at work. Just the list goes on and on and on. And they expect complete candor. You know, you can lie to your spouse, you can lie to your friends, but you cannot lie to CIA. If they find out about it, your life is going to be very uncomfortable. So when you take those two things together, then I realized, yeah, you know, I probably had a pretty screwed up 30 years in my life (laughs) and it probably changed me a lot as a person. And I, you know, and while I, I think there's a lot of unique things I got to do thanks to the intelligence community, you know, I paid for it in some ways that, that aren't entirely apparent to me yet but probably will be one day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I definitely think Lindsay uh, has has a future. And and as you alluded, this could could be the great start of a a long running series. But is the plan to to keep going with Lindsay for a while? You're going to jump back and forth between Lindsay and uh, and your horror novels? You're going to do a little play both sides of the fence there? Well, at least for the short term, that seems to be the plan because the next book, the one that comes out next year, is the next historical horror. And it's set in World War II and it has to do with the Japanese internment and this very little known historical event, which were the fire balloons. I don't know if you you have heard of it. 
No. See, I'm old, and it was a little bit more well-known when I was younger, but now it's like nobody's heard of it. So it combines the fire balloons with uh, the Japanese internment and, as always, sort of touches on how things that happened in the past that, you know, we still see some aspects of it today, like, you know, this increased nationalism and, mm. you know, fear of minorities and things like that. So really looking forward to that one. It's called The Fervor. Well, nice. Yeah, and and then and then you get then you go back to mining your own experience and uh, putting Lindsay in more jeopardy, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and uh, the TV series is going forward with Fox. So, oh, excellent. Like, yeah. So hopefully, yeah, it, everything's coming up Lindsay right now. <laughs> All right. All right, my next guest is Peter Swanson. His latest novel is Every Vow You Break, and it's another clever thriller about a newlywed who's hiding a secret, also trying to fend off a stalker at the same time and keep her new husband from finding out. And then when she's supposed to be on this idyllic trip, a whole lot of secrets come to light. Uh, Swanson is so good at taking these stories into unexpected places. So, I mean, Chris, I don't know if you're like me, but I just sort of assume that if I'm reading a mystery or a thriller that has a marriage in it, that marriage is probably doomed from page one. <laughs> you feel the same way? I, I think that's a reasonable assumption. And I know I read an interview that Peter did, I think in the big thrill where he says, what he loves is when one mistake, one misstep leads to a horrific outcome. And I, and I thought, yeah, and that's often a marriage. You know, I just, I don't like to, <laughs> having done that several times myself, although it's a very nice man, I'm not uh, maligning them. But yes, I think in fiction, uh, that that's a signal to us. And he does it obviously incredibly well. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Well, Peter, uh, you're, you're back on the show now with your new novel, Every Value Break. And this novel follows a long tradition of crime novels that take a rather dim view of marriage. <laughs> now, are you are you uh, trying to say something here? Do you, do you have uh, issues with the institution of marriage? <laughs> I, I, I am bound to say that I do not, especially considering uh, tomorrow is my 21st anniversary. Oh, wow. My wife, Charlene. So Congratulations. Um, I will say that, no, in my real life, um, marriage has been a happy state of existence. But I do think there's something inherently nerve wracking about the state of marriage in the beginning, because you're suddenly married to someone, maybe more so in the old days when people were not living together prior to marriage. But, you right. know, you're suddenly thrust into this very, you know, spending every moment with, with someone. And I think everyone will have that moment where they're like, wow, I think I know this person really well, but sometimes they feel like a stranger. Yeah. Putting a thriller on that is just that idea of like, well, how much of a stranger really are they? And I think, you know, and it's a popular, it's a popular trope because you see it a lot in thrillers, uh, not just now. I mean, you, you see it throughout the history of thrillers. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, anything that sticks around that long, it it, it, it speaks to the audience. I mean, we, we can all relate because yeah, I think you're right. It, it is sort of a universal feeling at some point. I mean, even I would say I'll, I'll be 21 years also this year. And there's sometimes that I look at my wife and I'm like, who are you? <laughs> yes. And I think you're right. That's the popularity speaks for itself. So, I mean, I'm thinking of Rebecca, which is a great. Oh, yeah. I think we forget how much of a smash hit 
Rebecca was in the first year it came out as a book. I mean, it, I think it was, you know, Gone Girl times 10. Like everyone wow. read it. Well, in every value break, um, Abigail makes one mistake and she ends up paying for it. This is sort yeah. of your classic uh, noir setup, spinning one bad choice yeah. out into a series of calamities. Uh, do you take any pleasure in sort of watching Abigail twist as you as you wrote her and you put her through these increasingly <laughs> difficult situations or, or do you start to feel bad for your characters i felt a little bad for abigail i um i mean she she does it is the sort of it's an infidelity thriller in the sense that so she has a a drunken one night fling on her bachelorette weekend um gets sort of talks to her friend and her friend's like maybe just forget this ever happened and move on and pretend it's just, you know, you're not married yet. And all the rationalizations come out. And then she pays a very high price for that. Um, Starting with this guy showing up at her honeymoon. Um, She doesn't even know how he found her, Um, but he's basically stalking her and things get, go get worse from there. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a thriller writer, you do, you want to make it hard on your protagonist always. I mean, that's, that's a sort of writer's um, trick when you're, when you're feel like you're getting stuck, um, in a book, make it worse, you know, just, just, <laughs> or, or if there's something that's keeping your protagonist happy, you know, take it away from them. So I think her honeymoon is at a place that or conveniently, she doesn't have a cell phone coverage, um, convenient for me as a thriller writer <laughs> um, and she can't get off the island, but, but also, um, you know, what's taken away from her is, is her support group, her best friend, um, through to her, her parents, you know, so, so you just want to strip, strip all that away from your protagonist. A lot of this novel is about when Abigail should, or or if she should even tell the truth. And then the deeper she falls into this mess, she finds out that, oh, she's maybe not the only one with some secrets. We won't, we won't give any more away. But when, when you see a, a character struggling, you know, to reveal something, I always sort of wonder, like, is a little bit of that really kind of the writer on the page wondering and struggling with when to reveal information to the reader. Cause a lot of this book really is dependent on when the reveals are made and that, you know, getting the hooks in deeper and sort of leading into the, into the third act kind of reveals that go on. Do you think there, there's any of that sort of the writing process and maybe a little bit of the anxiety of the writer wondering when is the right place to drop that information. Does that sort of come across on the page through the characters also kind of wondering the same thing or am I overthinking that? (laughs) No, I think you're right. And I think in particular, this type of book, I I think one of the things that I was interested in doing when I wrote this book was writing a very specific type of thriller, a thriller that basically follows one protagonist. We only know what she's thinking um, and we learn everything in the moment she learns everything, as opposed to a, a, a thriller that backtracks and gives you other time frames or, or different narrative perspectives, a more complex thriller. This is just stuff happens to her and she reacts. So as a writer, what I'm doing is, so it's when the events happen, I'm then, then sort of trying to get in her headspace, like, what should I do? And there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of this book is her internally want figuring out what do I do now do I tell the truth so if I'm thinking about her I'm thinking I well if I tell the truth I wreck my marriage that just began can I get rid of this guy and somehow protect this so she's always calculating and making decisions and it of course and things get worse and worse 
so then, so I did like this, this idea of sort of being in a trap that keeps getting uh, tighter and tighter, especially when you're a writer like me who doesn't necessarily um, plot in advance. So I don't have an outline. Oh, okay. You're throwing situations at her and um, you're, you're constantly thinking like, well, how could she get out of this? Should she make that decision? What are the bad things that could happen if she makes that decision? So you are, I'm going to go at it the other way. You're, you were sort of saying, I wonder if the, if her, she's mimicking a sort of writer's choices, but in a way she's trying to write her narrative, right? She's oh, yeah. trying to, I mean, like, like we all are. And she's, yeah. she's, um, she's in the middle of a story. She doesn't like that she's in and she's mad. And the, the happy ending keeps getting farther and farther away. Right. She's trying to figure out like, is there any way I can get there? And so there are a lot of, they're like writer's decisions in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I like it. I like it. it. It's clear to us from the start that, you know, Abby, Abigail, she's not hiding the fact that she had this one night stand, uh, as she said, during her, this bachelorette weekend. I mean, in setting up her making this mistake or this bad decision at the beginning, was there any worry uh, that you were afraid that readers might turn on her and think like, Oh, she's, well, clearly she deserves all this. She made the mistake. <laughs> or or do, were, were you confident that you could still uh, rein it in and, and, and will root for her as things start to go bad and she is trying to extricate herself for, for, as things get worse and worse for her? I didn't think too much about it um, because I try not. I mean, I think I'm in my seventh book now and um, there are certain things that I've sort of taught myself not to think about. Um, and one of them is not to get overly worried about likability of characters. I think you'd have to be pretty cold hearted at the end of the book to sort of say that she deserved. Yeah. No, nobody deserves what she goes through. Yeah. So I think, um, I think maybe her bigger mistake is, is in marrying someone that she wasn't a hundred percent sure of. Right. Yeah. As opposed to, as opposed to the events of the, like, like she should have taken that as a sign as opposed to that. She did this horrible, sinful thing. Um, yeah, that's how I think about it. Yeah, this is why I lived with my wife for five years before we got married. <laughs> I wanted to know where all the bodies were buried. <laughs> yeah, they say that sometimes that doesn't lead to long marriages. You know, contrary to what people think, that you're the exception to the rule. See, well, like you said, this is your seventh novel, and uh, you know, standalones along the way. So it's it's not like seven in in a series, but do do you think in any way that one book does sort of lead to the next, to the next, to the next, as you are finding, you know, you've learned something from one book that you want to then implement in the next one, or you just feel the need like, oh, I wrote that. Now I want to switch it up. Does, is there sort of an inevitable progression as you look back across those seven books? I don't think there's a progression, but I do think there's a little bit of um, me wanting to take advantage of the fact that I write standalones and stretch my wings a little. And I, I thought of this as sort of, like my Ira Levin book a little um, hmm. like, like I often think I would, I would love to write like a really like a classic sort of whodunit. I did that a little bit with perfect murders, you know, try my hand at different sub genres and mm-hmm. then try and just write them in the way that, you know, is my natural style so that there's some continuity that way. So I do think about it that, but I don't, I don't think there's a progression per se. Well, there's very few writers can put the screws to their characters the way you do. Yeah, <laughs> I would not want to be uh, find myself in one of your books when I woke up in the morning because things are not going to go well. Maybe I'll put your name in one of my books and uh, I'll be kind to you. Uh, well, yeah, 
I'll give you like one of those, you know, you'll just be like a one-off scene or whatever. Yeah. I was going to say, if, if you're on pay, on the page for very long, you know, it's not going to be kind for, for very long. My last guest is Wallace Strobe. Now, I've, I've been a fan of his novels for a while now, and his latest, Heaven's a Lie, was right up my alley. This is a dark noir story set along his beloved Jersey Shore, and this one definitely gets the writer types thumbs up. Chris, you also write about where you live. I mean, do you do that just because it's easier, or do you like to see that part of the world represented on the page? Well, I spent so much time, as I said, politics adjacent where Democrats and Republicans uh, used to get along better than they do now, but it's always been the sort of surface dynamic that people see. So by writing about California's capital, I feel like I can get away from the Republican Democratic side and maybe in a tiny way show people how uh, all these other things matter. So for me, it is the setting drives um, a lot of what I'm trying to work with. Uh, I think for, for him, clearly, Noir things are great when they are set in places like the New Jersey Shore because you've got a lot of elements there that would make that important. Wallace, Heaven's a Lie announces right in the title that this is a noir story where things might get bleak. So, of course, I loved this book. This is my kind of story. And judging from your other work, I, you you like it dark as well, right? Uh, yeah, probably a little too much, I think, in that direction sometimes. But um, whatever whatever it is, it's got to be emotional. It's got to feel emotionally real. Uh, so, yeah, maybe I drift over in that direction too much. I don't know. Well, too much uh, for other readers, you think? You think you're, you're, you're darker sensibility than, than most or maybe just not a, a summer beach read? No, you know, it, it's, it's a funny thing. Um, I like fiction that's realistic, especially crime fiction. And if you're going to be dealing with, you know, if, you, if you're writing an actual crime novel that revolves around crimes, then, you know, you have to be kind of be emotionally honest with it. You know, you don't have to be, you know, you can write stories, crime stories where there aren't much in the way of consequences to violence. But if you're going to deal with violence, I think you have to deal with it in a realistic way, which is, it's a devastating thing for everybody concerned. And so I am put off, I think, when I read books or see movies where that is not dealt with realistically. Do you think your, your strive for reality comes from your journalism background? I don't know about that. I mean, that certainly was part of it, but you know, I've always wanted to write fiction. Journalism is a lot, is a great training for writing uh, any sort of writing, but especially for writing uh, uh, books. And also you do have experiences. You see people in different walks of life uh, and you hear their stories. So that's, so they do go hand in hand and certainly, you know, with an enormous amount of, I don't know if it's an enormous amount, but a lot of, you know, our best crime writers have been, have had newspaper experience. Like McConnelly, Laura Lippman, you know, I could go on and on. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely, uh, it, it seems to happen. There's almost more journalists than former lawyers, <laughs> and, and that's a long list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is, yeah. Well, this story follows a, a long tradition in my favorite subgenre of crime novels and noir novels in particular, which is finding a bag of money. And this never goes well for people in the books that to the point that if, if I found a giant bag of money, I, there's no way in the world I would ever keep it. 
I would turn it over immediately because I've read too many cautionary tales like this. Do you think you've learned any lessons or do you think if you found a bag of money, you still might be able to get away with it? Well, well, that would be a very short book if they got away with it, you know? <laughs> so yeah, no, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a classic idea. Like that goes back, you know, a long ways. I can name 10 books and or movies that have basically the same similar plot, but they're all unique in their own way. Yeah. And I think what I wanted to do was I wanted to take like a classic plot. And then first of all, I wanted to write about the Jersey shore again, because I hadn't lived, I hadn't written about it for a while, even though I've lived here all my life mostly. And I wanted to write about the Jersey shore in winter, which can be a, you know, a bleak place. Mm. So I I had the idea. I wanted to do this sort of classical idea but invested in a real sense of place and a real sense of character, you know, as I know the place and as I know the people who live here. And so that was always sort of the uh, guide. And I have to give another shout out to Laura Lippman here. Uh, she wrote a book a couple of years ago called Sunburn. Oh, love that. Which is in some ways a very sort of traditional James M. Cain type story. Yeah. But she, it, she was able to invest it with different characters, different unique outlooks, unique perspective. And when I read that, I thought, yeah, you know, you can actually take something that's kind of classical in a lot of ways and turn it into another direction and still keep that structure for the most part, but explore all different things and send it off in all different ways. I think reading that gave me the confidence to go ahead and, and do what I, you know, what I wanted to do, because you're always worried that, you know, is it, is it too much like something else or is something else going to come out in the meantime that's too much like it? Uh, and I learned eventually you, you can't worry about that because you will drive yourself nuts and there's nothing that you can't do anything about it. Now, you said, as you say, you're from the Jersey Shore and, and you've written about it here. You've written about it in the past. Uh, I mean, but you've written some awful things that happen there. I mean, what what does that say about a place that when you write about it, uh, but you don't necessarily paint it in the prettiest of light? <laughs> Actually, you know, I, I wrote the first two books were both set at the shore. They were about an ex-New Jersey State Trooper, uh, the Barbed Wire Kiss and the Heartbreak Lounge. Yeah. And those are very much I wanted to write about the shore, you know, the world I knew. And I wanted to write about bar culture, shore bar culture. Uh, so there were certain things, you know, you write your first book and you're trying to get everything. You're trying to cram your whole life into that book. <laughs> For the third book, Gone to November, I wanted to set, you know, part of it set in rural Florida. Part of it is spent in Newark, set in Newark, New Jersey, where I worked for 13 years at the Newark Stone Ledger. Uh, so I wanted to write about Newark, so that you know, and that's a little easier to do because it's a very, you know, it's a very unique setting. It's a very urban setting. But I didn't, re- you know, I didn't really write about the shore again until I think the second or third Chris Stone book out of the four. Uh, so with Heaven's a Lie, I did really want to write about the shore again. And wanted to set it in the winter, which can be, you know, a bleak time. And also the economics, you know, what's been going on for the last five years, six years, seven years, had to figure into it, you know? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. That puts so, the squeeze on on a character like Joette doing when she's, uh, you know, she's starting off in the hole and then, oh, boom, you add a temptation of uh, this free money. Yeah, that's, you're already uh, tightening the vice around her. <laughs> Yeah. Also the idea of, you know, 
maybe a momentary lapse of judgment or maybe a moment of temporary insanity and you do yeah. something and then then how do you go back you know you know who knows what anybody would do in that most people of course you know would not do that but maybe in a moment of temporary insanity with enough pressures against you on you uh you know you never know what you're capable of yeah yeah, that's uh, that's the fun thing about uh, a crime fiction like this is putting yourself in that situation and trying to imagine what you would do and hopefully hoping it goes better <laughs> than it does for Joette. To quote Noah Cross in Chinatown, uh, most people never have to uh, face the fact that they're capable of anything. Right. <laughs> I hope I never get a chance. <laughs> Well, I, the other uh, character that she's squaring off with in this book, Travis Clay, uh, it, w- it was a really fun uh, character. I mean, I, I mean, he's evil, but it was a lot of fun to read. And I've, I was always struck. I mean, actors are always saying that it's more fun to play the villain. And so I think Travis is someone who he would be a, a perfect role for actors who would love to get their hands on. But I, as an author, is it also kind of more fun to write the villain? Uh, I think that in all of the books, there has been the villain, so to speak, uh, has always been a major part of the book. You know, you can really get your teeth into something like that. I I think you can. Yeah. First of all, to write, you have to be able to get in anybody's shoes. You know, you have to be able, no matter how horrible they are, you got to find something for them. You know, some reason for what they do. My villains in Travis in this book is is part of a long line of my villains who are, I would describe them as dangerous men who are running out of road, you mm. know? Yeah. So I feel that, you know, I feel that when, when I'm writing about those. And even though they do, uh, you know, terrible things, but I don't think I'm nihilistic at all, you know? I try and treat them, treat the villains as realistically as I would anybody else. There are no straightforward, you know, I never write about law enforcement. Right. Because so many people do it and, and do it really well. And I'm just not that interested in it. I'm interested in what happens when normal people cross over the line into a different world. Oh, well, and then that in a nutshell is why I love your books, because that is exactly what I'm interested in, too. So well done, sir. And uh, this one, Heaven's Lie, uh, is one that I'm already recommending to people uh, all around. So uh, congratulations on, on this new one. And uh, I you. say, keep it dark, Wallace. <laughs> uh, well, you never know. You know, I may wake up with a different uh, sensibility one morning. and uh, But, you know, I, I like to think that it pays off, you know, it's like, it's got to be honest, uh, even when it's dark, but it can't be dark all the time because that's not honest either. Right. The dawn always comes. Yeah. And I always, writing, I always think about a Sam Peckinpah quote in an interview where he said that, talking about filmmaking and writing, he said, uh, it's th- it's three words, introduce, develop, and resolve. You have to do all those things. Yeah. And the resolving, you know, I, I never end with unhappy endings, you know. All endings are unhappy if you take them long enough, but I don't, that's not my, the way I see the world either. Well, good. There you go. You're, you're getting the most out of, uh, out of the beach life there on the shore. It's, it's, it's giving you a positive attitude. Still a little chilly. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, you made it to the end. Thanks for co-hosting <laughs> with me today. Congratulations on all that fall. Uh, you, this brand new book, uh, your your relaunch into the the crime and mystery community again. Uh, I will also bestow the writer types endorsement on this book. 
you know, for readers who love a good uh, a page turning thriller, check out Chris's new book, All That Fall. Uh, scroll down. Uh, and you can always find us on Twitter at Writer Types. Uh, I hope you're a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. You can get all the back episodes at writertypespodcast.com. My books are always over at ericbeatner.com. And I'll be back next time with more authors. Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Congratulations on the book. And uh, we look forward to more of Emma's adventures. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to be here with you and such wonderful authors. So thank you. <laughs>